Well, how often does an evening on Vatican II result in standing room only? But here we are, and that's a wonderful problem to have. I'd like to welcome everybody who is here. My name is Karen Eifler, and I'm one-third of the Garaventa Center team, uh, Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the university, and we are delighted to welcome lots of new faces and see some familiar ones. And... Um, just a couple of housekeeping announcements that if you're a student who's here for credit, I have the sign-up sheet that I'll make available after Dr. Cameron's talk is over. Just find me. Um, if you are a community member or a student who would like to be part of our electronic mailing list, which keeps you in touch with all of the things that we do uh, throughout the year, as well as weekly podcast reflections, uh, with the dulcet tones and great mind of uh, Father Charlie Gordon, we have a, a sign-up sheet uh, next to the refreshments. If you are a teacher in a K-12 school, we are pleased to partner with the School of Education here at the University of Portland. And for all of our events, we're able to offer at no cost to you professional development units. And the sign-up sheet for that uh, is also in the back. We also have a calendar. We're winding down our fall 2015 set of offerings, and we're actually moving into kind of a reflective period uh, as we enter into Advent. But but we're going to start up uh, fairly frenetically um, in the spring, and you will want to grab a calendar. We're always adding, uh, we're still adding to the spring calendar, but we would love for you to know um, what's coming up. Tonight is actually the last lecture that we're offering in 2015. So I am delighted to introduce my friend and my very talented colleague, Dr. Michael Cameron, who joined the University of Faculty, the University of Portland Theology Faculty in 2002. He completed his doctorate uh, in the School of Divinity at the University of Chicago, and he has a real talent for making very complex thoughts accessible to anybody who's interested in those and um, and having a, a controlled kind of passion in what he talks about. And I've seen him dazzle uh, groups when he is talking about relationships between Jews and Catholics, that the healing process began in Vatican II about 50 years ago. Um, I asked him to give a talk at a, at a celebration of that, and I got all the credit for him being brilliant and dazzling, which is kind of fun. No effort on my part except, hey, Michael, would you do this? And he did, and he was wonderful. I also know as an advisor that he's got to be a great teacher because his class is always filled, and I have heartbroken students um, wondering what else could they possibly take because what they really, really, really wanted was Dr. Cameron's classes on patristics, on Augustine, on the theology of the Holocaust. He's a generous, talented colleague and friend, and I know we're in for a great evening. Please help me uh, welcome Dr. Michael Cameron to the podium. Dr. Ivor, thank you for that wonderful introduction, and, and how wonderful to see all of you here. Uh, it's it's, I'm going to be louder. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's wonderful to see you all here and to be able to share in this moment with you, which is an important historic moment uh, for this council commemoration of these documents. Uh, Dr. Eiffel talked about the uh, 
Nostra Aetate document on uh, declaration on non-Christian religions that included uh, things relating to Jews, but there was also an important document relating to scripture, and that's the, uh, the subject tonight. So thank you all for being here. Thanks to the bookstore for, for hosting us and for the Garaventa Center for uh, uh, putting all of this together. Thanks so much to everyone. Fifty years ago next week, November 18th, 1965, a cheer went up from the normally staid and quiet Basilica of St. Peter's in Rome when His Holiness Pope Paul VI signed the historic document that would change the attitudes of millions of Catholics about a central but somewhat neglected part of their faith, the Bible. The document is called De Iverbum. In English, the Constitution on Divine Revelation. It was a landmark statement of the Second Vatican Council that brought Catholics to a new level of scriptural awareness, reading, and understanding. Now, why the Bible should be important should be fairly self-evident to a religious community, but why it became relatively neglected, at least among the faithful, it's a longer story, but it's essential to know something about that to tell why this is important and to sort of lay the groundwork for this uh, book that I've launched tonight uh, with your help. How Catholics Read the Bible in History. This is the moment when Paul is signing the document, and this is when the sense of the wonder and awesome relief in relation to a new way of reading this text comes forward. In a sense, it recalls and picks back up on an ancient way of reading texts. The church grew up in the first millennium, basically in a biblical culture supported by clergy and the obedience of the faithful. Late in that first millennium, no one could challenge the church in terms of its spiritual and temporal power. Partly due to the church taking responsibility for culture and even government in the wake of the fall of the Roman Empire, after the turn of that millennium, European culture and society, however, was beginning to revive, regain its footing. Though the church emerges in this culture in the Middle Ages as a solid, massive, practically unmovable, power is important, beauty is paramount. On the other hand, <clears throat> there are problems. Corruption at every level a series of cracks in the facade begin to appear with the resistance of temporal kings and princes and the rumblings of dissenting groups. Concern for reform and renewal was a constant theme in that second millennium. Unfortunately, no one knew exactly how to go about it. The church's take on the Bible remained fairly clear and untroubled in that first half of the second millennium between 1,000 and 1,500 or so. 
Nevertheless, there was a series of challenges over the next 400 years that would send a series of shockwaves through the church and bring it down to a question of crisis, how we must change. Shock one in the early 16th century was the Reformation. It challenged age-old understandings of Scripture. All the reformers settled on Scripture as a tool of reform, first by rejecting the church's claim to base itself on Scripture and to determine the extent and the teaching and the meaning of Scripture. No one except for a few marginal figures had ever challenged the church on this issue on this scale before. But it upset the long-standing and rather finely tuned balance between the sacrament on the one hand and scripture on the other, and a bond was broken that had endured for virtually 1,500 years. In the aftermath of the Reformation, the church protected the sacrament at all costs and began to reserve scripture for its elite and its educated and to sort of pull it out of the hands of the faithful um, in uh, ways except that uh, for the tidbits it would pass out uh, at mass. Religion of the Bible got acquainted with Protestantism and thus was created a split that was to endure for centuries. A second shock. In the 17th century, science took hold of the imagination of the elite and the common person alike after stunning discoveries by people like Galileo and Newton. Ancient ideas about the universe were being upset, including understandings that derived from the Bible. And it challenged the way it was read. A third shock, political revolution in the late 18th century, not unrelated to scientific change in previous decades, was a consciousness of respect for and then ultimately an exaltation of rational thinking, a tool par excellence for understanding all things in life and in creation. Reason was not simply an aid to faith. Reason was not simply a foundation for faith. Now reason became a replacement for faith. This seeped into the cultural consciousness of Europe and America in what is called the Age of Enlightenment, led to the overthrow of ancient customs and institutions, sometimes violently first in the breakaway of the American colonies from England, but above all in France, where revolution groups stirred an overthrow of the monarchy and the institutions which the church had supported and depended on. This exaltation of reason often excluded religion completely in general and the Roman Catholic Church in particular. A fourth shock, eight 19th century discoveries in the natural world. In 1824, discoveries of the first dinosaur bones led to a series 
of theories about ancient race of creatures never known before that predated humanity and the timeline of the Bible, not by thousands or even hundreds of thousands, by, but by hundreds of millions of years. In 1859, experiments let Charles Darwin to the conclusion that earthly life had evolved over unimaginable periods of time, including human life, which had developed perhaps from yet a different kind of species than ourselves. Not at all like what we read in Genesis 2 and 3. Some felt in the church, some felt no fear in combining science with a religious worldview, but in others, the change of consciousness that this represented was tumultuous and traumatic. The Catholic Church, 19th century, in the person of Pope Pius IX, reacted to challenges to its authority and its outlook with dismay and disagreement. Pius issued the so-called Syllabus of Errors in 1864, which condemned statements like the following as utterly maliciously false. It is false, said Pius, that... Someone should say, all the truths of religion proceed from the innate strength of human reason alone, and that reason is the ultimate standard by which man can and ought to arrive at the knowledge of all truths of every kind, end quote. Here's another rejected proposition. It is false that the Roman pontiff can and ought to reconcile himself and come to terms with progress, liberalism, and modern civilization. Hear the door slam. The church froze itself into a kind of corner from the expectations of the world, which discovered it could go on quite well without the church in many ways. In the meantime, progress continued unabated in the study of the Bible, particularly the revision of the development of its history and literature and the way that's to be understood. Ice began to thaw slowly under Pope Leo XIII, who ascended the throne of Peter in 1878. Besides progressive teachings on the dignity of people and the dignity of work, Leo issued one encyclical that maintained traditional teaching but opened doors slightly to modern views, exploration of modern views about the Bible. He established the Pontifical Biblical Commission in the early 20th century for the study of new questions and how they might be received without forsaking traditional faith. This stirred the mind of a forward-thinking Dominican by the name of Marie-Joseph Lagrange. He taught church history and Holy Scripture for a while in Austria honed his oriental language skills, and then was ordered to leave for Jerusalem, where he sketched a working program, and in 1890, in a former Turkish slaughterhouse, in which the rings the animals were to be hung from were still to be seen, he opened what he insisted on calling the L'Ecole Pratique des Tous Bibliques, the Practical School for Biblical Studies. Father Lagrange was a partisan of the encyclical of Leo, Providencimus Deus, 
providentissimus Deus uh, that I had just talked about, which invited scholars to study the difficulties of rationalist analysis. But then some disliked his approach and ultimately his uh, data that he turned up and he got centered and had to leave Jerusalem for a year, but he remained heroically faithful to the church. After Leo's long papacy died in 1903, ended in 1903, the church's taste for exploration waned and a new pope was elected who had another syllabus to create. Pius X was something of a, con a continuation of Pius IX and he issued his own syllabus against what he called the modernists diagnosing their mistakes, excommunicating some of their followers. The conflagration was tremendous. There were experimenters, there were readers of scripture, there were uh, people who were trying to think new thoughts in a way that would bring science and the traditional faith together, some of whom we can see here, Friedrich von Hugel, uh, Alfred Loisie, and George Tyrrell. Tyrrell and Loisie eventually were excommunicated. Loisie left the faith. Von Hugel came close to excommunication, but eventually remained and then restricted himself to learning about mysticism. It was a dark time. It was a difficult time between those who were trying to understand how to integrate these two great realities of the modern world and traditional faith, there was fear, there was longing, there was suffering. But light came from an unexpected source in the middle of the Second World War. In 1943, Pius XII issued an encyclical on biblical studies, Divino Eflante Spiritu, which has often been called the Magna Carta of biblical study in the Roman Catholic Church. After tentative experiments with that integration between traditional faith and newer ideas, Pius was willing to open the door to realize that the humanness of Scripture was something essential to understanding its character. That is to say, history and literature were to be understood as human products through which God acts to give the Word of God. The Word of God does not override the human. The Word of God comes through the human. He spoke especially about uh, literary forms uh, of the text, the poetry, the history, the, the uh, 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 laws and genealogies to be understood as products of their time and the thought forms that went into them as products of their time. That laid the groundwork for the coming of Pope John XXIII, who was the forward thinker wanted to throw open the windows of the church to be able to refresh the church's understanding in the modern world without forsaking the traditional faith. He was very explicit about that. 
One of the things that was foremost on the agenda was scripture. He appointed the Pontifical Biblical Commission to study the question about the story of Jesus in the Gospels. How much can we take about the history and the uh, the narrative uh, in terms of an understanding of who Jesus was, how much can we trust it? Where is the borderline between what is true and false history? The commission responded in 1964 with a historic document called the Instruction on the Historical Truth of the Gospels, which welcomed insights about the development of tradition behind the gospel accounts. The commission saw three stages of development, and here's the historical dimension of the texts being brought forward, that there was the first stage of the life of Jesus himself, then there was a period of oral reflection and oral instruction, storytelling, in which Jesus' teachings are crafted for particular communities, and then ultimately a third stage in which the Gospels are being written down. And in order to understand how these Gospels portray and convey the meaning and the life and the person of Jesus, we don't understand the whole process. We can't simply read off the top who Jesus was or what Jesus said. The very next year, the Second Vatican <laughs> Council in 1965 took up the insights of the commission and the instruction on the historical truth of the Gospels, embedded them within an overarching statement, Dei Verbum, the Constitution on Divine Revelation, in which all the insights of the previous 50-plus years, going back to the time of Leo XIII, were embedded in the highest possible authoritative document uh, in the Church. It also included a reminder and an insistence on the tradition of the faith as known for 20 centuries being integrated with that more scientifically enlightened and historically conscious set of documents, set of perspectives. So how has our perspective changed? Once upon a time, all readers took biblical texts at face value, simply accepting their statements about cosmology and history and reports and words and deeds of Moses or of Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, exactly as you see it in Matthew 5 through 7. But in a historical world, the modern world, we can't read so simply any longer. Historical critical analysis has revealed the complexity of the process of witnessing, storytelling, teaching, writing, transmitting traditions among peoples and communities, and the church now acknowledges composition stages and re-editing and sometimes reshaping the tradition even to fit new needs and ideas. It's a dynamic process, and frankly speaking personally, 10 times more interesting than just reading the text naively and straightforwardly. One has to read several levels of the tradition full of possibilities for spiritual reflection and analysis and enlightenment. 
It's a wonderful thing. As recently as the 1640s, it had been intellectually credible at Cambridge University to assert from the study of Genesis that God created the world about the year 4000 BC. People believed that a 600-year-old man built an ark and survived a worldwide flood, that 600,000 people wandered in the wilderness in the desert for 40 years after the exodus, that Jonah sat inside a fish for three days, and so on. But that revolution with Galileo and Darwin and others, Darwin and Einstein and others, has changed that decisively. Page mixed up here. Hold on. And remind me, how do I get to that other that other file? Insert your own music here. <laughs> That's what you want, right? There we go. Hello. I just blew someone's retinas out with a bulb. I'm very sorry about that. See you later for a chocolate panel. <laughs> Thank you. What is the distinctive way of reading scripture as a Catholic? <coughs> First, let it be said, there's an added value here. We read with all other Christians in ways that reflect the uh, common shared uh, tradition from, from the early church with Catholics and uh, with Protestants, rather, and with uh, Orthodox the Catholic version, which we share somewhat with the Orthodox, has a kind of both-and approach, however, that holds together Scripture's divine and human aspects. And I think the achievement of Dei Verbum was the complete recovery of this sense of the humanness of Scripture together with the divinity. We are not so worried about besmirching or obscuring the divine aspect of Scripture by allowing the humanness of it to stand forward. In this way, with its spiritual and fleshly dimensions, it holds together, this Catholic view of Scripture holds together a reader's intellectual and emotional and moral needs. Catholic thinking and experience holds together the authenticity and the warmth of a personal reading of Scripture from faith 
together with the stability, the security, and the depth of reading in a historic community that dates back thousands of years. And Catholics insist that very way of reading is deeply biblical. Learning to read scripture as a Catholic doesn't require denigrating other people's points of view, nor does it insist that it's right just because it's Catholic. The Catholic way of reading scripture, at its best anyway, is characterized by the fullness, the breadth, the width, the embrace of all of God's revelation, and the whole human person. I call this way of reading sacramental, and that's the basis of the, the book that's being uh, launched tonight, The Catholic Way of Scripture, the sacramental vision that's distinctive to us that we can uh, claim for our own. And what I'd like to suggest to you are 10 characteristics of this Catholic sacramental way of reading Scripture. First, Christ meets us everywhere. We can see the first elements of a Christian reading of Scripture in the Easter day scenes of Luke 24. When the risen Jesus teaches Scripture to the disciples after his resurrection, that seems to have been the Lord's major activity all day long on Easter, teaching Scripture to the disciples. First, he meets incognito with disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he interpreted to them things about himself in all the scriptures, says Luke. They marveled at how Jesus opened the scriptures to them and made their hearts burn. Then appearing to Peter and all the apostles, Jesus opened their minds to understand how he had fulfilled Quote, everything written about him in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. The disciples learned to read scripture anew. Completely different vantage point that he gave them. Through his eyes, they read the ancient scriptures of Israel. So our Lord is not only central to Scripture's content, he's central to its very structure in the Christian Catholic way of thinking of things. He came into our world as word of God, into our human flesh, and that exactly parallels Scripture's own divine human quality. That's the key insight that gets embedded in Dei Verbum, and that's at the basis of the, uh, the book that I've written. God is almighty and divine, but uses human means to reveal himself to humanity. Here's what Dei Verbum says, quote, For the words of God expressed in human language have been made like human discourse, just as the word of the Eternal Father, when he took to himself the flesh of human weakness, was in every way made like men. Divine and human dimensions coexist. They always relate to each other in Christ. So the Catholic way of reading doesn't make the text of the Bible an end in itself. Rather, it looks through the text to find the full revelation of 
who Jesus is to us. Second, we hear in Scripture, we hear in Scripture what I call an audible sacrament. And we're used to the concept of the Eucharist and what we taste. But in Scripture, Christ comes to us, offers himself to us in the form of oral instruction or written instruction, as the case may be. And this is sacramental. Sacraments mediate to us, that is, they provide a bridge from heavenly and divine things to earthly and human things. Bread, wine, oil, water, mediate the divine presence to us to taste, taste, touch, to smell. In the Eucharist, we receive the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as the Council of Trent taught, body and blood, soul and divinity. But these are not simply static essences, abstract. They are rather dynamic, active embodiments that include the whole story of Jesus in the sacramental presence. These sacraments teem with the history of the Lord's life, his interactions with people, and ultimately his death and resurrection. His living, his dying, his rising again. As Pope St. Leo the Great said way, way back in the 5th century, our Redeemer's visible presence has passed into the sacraments. And that's true not only for the Eucharist, it's true for the reading of Scripture. Its words are sacraments. They bring to us the presence of Christ through the sense of hearing. It doesn't merely point to or recall our, to our minds the things of God, but brings Christ's presence to us like the sacrament of the altar. And here's what De Iverbum said about it. Quote, The church has always venerated the divine scriptures just as she venerates the body of the Lord, since, especially in the sacred liturgy, she unceasingly receives and offers to the faithful the bread of life from the table of both God's word and Christ's body. It's a marvelous integration of word and sacrament that's been recovered uh, in the church's teaching through Dei Verbum and since. It's a very ancient Catholic tradition. It recovers some, a, a balance that the church knew in its early centuries. The greatest biblical interpreter of the early church, Origen of Alexandria, third century, wrote, quote, you are therefore to understand the scriptures in this way, colon, as the one perfect body of the word. Origen thought Scripture was an extension of the incarnation to us. Magnificent. And St. Jerome, who had studied Origen closely, wrote that, quote, We nourish ourselves with Christ's flesh and drink his blood, not only in the Eucharist, but also in reading the Scriptures. Indeed, true food and true drink is the word of God, which we derive from the scriptures. 
It's a sacramental presence. Third, we find in Scripture a powerful word coming to us. Catholic way of reading Scripture recognizes the sacramental impact of God's word upon us. They're not mere pictures, but they are channels of divine power. This recovers something very deeply ancient, not only Christian, but Jewish. From the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah wrote, Yet just as from the heavens, the rain and the snow come down and do not return there till they have watered the earth, making it fruitful and fertile, giving seed to the one who sows and bread to the one who eats, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall do what pleases me, achieving the end for which I sent it. Wonderful. Isaiah 55. God's word enacts life. And in the New Testament, it's even more pronounced in the stories about Jesus. Through all four gospel accounts, Jesus refutes evil. He forgives sins. He stills storms. He heals diseases. He conquers death by a powerful command. And it's very specific in the text. Listen to the way the writers say it. Matthew says, He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will do it. Be made clean. His leprosy was cleansed immediately. Powerful word. Mark says, He woke up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Quiet, be still. The wind ceased, and there was great calm. And John says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. These texts clue us into the forceful word of Jesus that has passed over into the scriptures. Catholics read scripture venerating a word that transforms their lives. Fourth, we attend to Scripture's storytelling in order to stir faith and love. The most important way of knowing and receiving God's power through Scripture is through its stories. The Bible's overarching story is thus, it's a story of love. The great Swiss theologian Karl Barth, whose books fill entire library shelves, visited America in 1962. A student in Chicago at the Divinity School, in fact, I wasn't there, however, uh, asked if he could sum up his life work in a sentence. And he said, after a pause, quote, Yes, I can. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
The Bible stories first tell of that love, and they stir believers to love God and neighbor with that same love. The Bible tells a coherent story of love that leads to an exalted outlook on the world with majestic ethical principles, examples of lives lived in sacrificial service, in the cause of justice and compassion, culminating in the figure of Jesus. All of this is combined with a magnificent history of thousands of repentant sinners and striving saints in the church's history, along with a few villains, bringing out a deep, hidden human dignity, not usually evident in our history books or on the nightly news. Fifth, we embrace the mysteries of Scripture. Catholic readers fearlessly welcome mystery, not merely as a way to check reason at the door, but as a way to give reason its proper place and functioning. We have no quarrel with science. And mystery here refers not to things we can't understand. A mystery is actually, in a Catholic way of thinking, it's something we can understand but cannot exhaust. This knowledge walks the shoreline and wades in the shallows of divine mysteries, vast ocean. The power of reason is effective as far as it goes, but it remains insufficient to achieve our full uh, stature as human beings. So the fathers of Vatican II affirmed that God chose to share, quote, and this is Dei Verbum again, quote, those divine treasures which totally transcend the understanding of the human mind. Good and marvelous thing. Six, we study scripture's human dimensions of history and literature. Since I've said so much about this, I won't belabor it, but it relates to all that exploration about the, the wondrous texts of the Bible, which quite apart from being part of the canon of scripture, much of it could stand next shoulder to shoulder with any literature the world has ever produced. Dei Verbum makes the point by saying that the interpreter has to investigate the meaning of the sacred writer within their own time and culture, paying attention to customary and characteristic styles of feeling, speaking, and narrating which prevailed at the time of the sacred writer, and to patterns of thinking that were normally employed at the period in everyday dealings with one another. This leads to a seventh point, and that is made explicit by Dei Verbum that we read scripture for the sake of salvation. That's the purpose of the Bible. 
Now, that may seem obvious, but it embeds something very, very crucial. Scripture's purpose is not to make definitive pronouncements about science or medicine or warfare or human development, except incidentally. Its main focus is God's word for salvation. Catholic readings of Scripture aim to interpret the Word of God according to that purpose and not some other imported one. So you cannot read Genesis chapter 1, for instance, expecting to find accurate scientific knowledge about the structure of the universe. It simply does not give information about science or cosmology or physics. Ancient writers cannot be held accountable for not knowing modern scientific ideas. God's choice to accommodate the word to human language and cultures ensures that ancient people were allowed to work honestly within their own cultures, and it frees us to work within our culture to understand them. What divine humility that God was willing to risk submitting the precious message of eternal salvation to changeable human ways of thinking, speaking, and acting. And yet that's exactly what happened. And the same kind of humility is a component of the Catholic reading of Scripture, reading modestly, looking for the message of salvation. Eighth, Catholics hold Scripture's unity together as one book with many different parts in a kind of fruitful tension together. It's grounded in history without losing its divine spiritual verve. It honors emotional depth without losing intellectual acuteness. It breeds a sense of spiritual freedom without shirking the responsibility for just and loving relationships. It stresses tradition and discipline without losing spontaneity and insight. It is conservative and yet daring, ancient and yet new, strong yet tender, globally focused and yet locally oriented, conscious of community and yet aware of the individual. And the Lord himself mediates everything. As the letter of the Colossians memorably put it, quote, In him, all things hold together. Ninth, we read scripture in community together. Yes, Jesus is a personal savior. He healed people one by one rather than en masse, like the poor leper. But notice that he sent the leper to the priest to show himself, to give a testimony, to make an offering that would restore him to his family and to his community. 
Jesus saves persons by incorporating each one into his community, something symbolized by the countless meals that he ate with sinners and self-righteous and poor alike. The church's important sense of Catholic tradition is a constant guide to reading. And so Dei Verbum says, quote, Consequently, it is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. It is both sacred tradition and sacred scripture together that are to be accepted and venerated with a the same sense of loyalty and reverence. St. Augustine, sitting in his bishop's chair, the position of teachers in the ancient world, told his congregation, quote, What after all do I want? What do I desire? What am I longing for? Why am I speaking? Why am I sitting here? What do I live for, if not with this intention that we should all live together with Christ? That is my desire. That's my honor. That's my most treasured possession. That's my joy. That's my pride and glory. I don't want to be saved without you. Tenth, final. We read scripture together to climb its mountain summit to love. Love is what scripture is about. It's what it's for. It's how it's read. It's our goal. This is the holy grail of the Bible. The theme to which all things lead and from which all things flow out. The nourishment lying in plain sight in every open meadow of scripture and hiding under every leaf of shade. With love, the whole Bible hangs together. Jesus himself taught us this. When asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, the greatest is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength, and a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And in a precious addition we find only in Matthew's gospel, Jesus adds, on these two commandments hang the entire law and prophets. He's just handed us the golden key for understanding the texts. For the Catholic reader of scripture, love is in the heart, formed by God, is the goal of God's ancient covenant with Israel, the purpose of Christ's coming, the effect of Christ's death and resurrection, the load-bearing beam of Catholic reading, the high point of the reader's formation, the attitude that can recognize the truth of scripture because only the one who loves well reads well. So, the Bible clearly has a quiet but massive presence within our lives as Catholics. We hear scriptures at Mass, but those are only chips off 
something much larger. Something set out for display at the top of the enormous jewelry box of the Bible. A sense of this half-hidden treasure and an eagerness to get more of it out there for people appears in the statements from the Second Vatican Council, especially Dei Verbum. The fathers at the council wrote, quote, The treasures of the Bible are to be opened up more lavishly so that richer fare may be provided for the faithful at the table of God's word. And again, easy access to scripture should be provided for all the Christian faithful. As St. Augustine turned to close his reading of Genesis at the end of his landmark book, The Confessions, he offered a scripture-laced prayer for encouragement in reading and understanding that fits well what I've talked about tonight and the, the book I've proposed to you. Augustine wrote in prayer to God, Yours is the day, yours the night. A sign from you sends minutes speeding by. Spare in their fleeting course a space for us to ponder the hidden wonders of your law. Shut it not against us as we knock. Not in vain have you willed so many pages to be written, pages deep in shadow, obscure in their secrets. Not in vain do the deer and the hind seek shelter in those woods to hide and venture forth to roam and browse, to lie down and ruminate. Perfect me, Lord. Reveal those woods to me. The woods, the forest of scripture, with all its nourishment, either out in the open or in hiding. This is what Catholics look for. This is what we receive. This is what unfolds sacred scripture. And this is how Catholics read the Bible. Thank you so much. stimulating talk. I heard lots of frantic typing and note-taking, and if you're still foggy on the 10 points, I should tell you that Dr. Cameron's talk will be available on our website within two days um, as a podcast, and also you can find it on the Garaventus Center's iTunes. We are, uh, we're in this whole 21st century thing, and so we have a home on iTunes where we post uh, our public lectures. He's graciously consented to answer two or three questions, so we'll we'll take uh, questions at this point. I'll let you call on folks. Okay. Please. So, in your study of uh, Vatican II, where would you say that, in, in respect to the Council of Trent, what would you say that it like added to? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. There was. At the Council of Trent, a lot of concern to answer very clearly and faithfully to the challenge of the Reformers. They wanted to be clear that it's not Scripture alone, but Scripture and tradition. And they spoke in terms that sounded like a kind of river of two streams, you know, that's actually how the reflection on the document, this document of Vatican II, it started there. And the, the 
the bishops decided to reject that perspective, not in the sense of rejecting the idea of scripture and tradition, but rather the idea that these are separate streams, that they become part of one stream together. Scripture and tradition are part of one word of God coming to us. So there was an adjustment, I would say, about the language from from Trent. It certainly wasn't a repudiation at all. It was a bringing together and a, 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 an identification of the two aspects with one will of God, so to say. Does that help? Yeah. That would be the biggest thing, I think. Sure. Michael, there are some elements in the scripture which can be um, scandalous. Um, or maybe uh, something that is bothersome. Parts like, for instance, uh, Yahweh caused the hardness of heart of Moses and then punished him. And uh, No, hardness of heart of the Pharaoh and punished him. Pharaoh, but he was the one who caused the hardness of heart mm. of Pharaoh. Uh, it was said that um, Yahweh commanded Saul to kill the Amalekites. And of course, there are some um, disturbing um, stories about gender, right? Women as um, inferior to men in a patriarchal society, and that uh, women uh, were, um, you know. Um, they're not allowed to worship if they're menstruating because they're, they're dirty and that their barrenness is a curse. So when you read parts like that, I mean, you say, this is the word of God. Mm-hmm. How would you explain that to someone who does not know how to read the scripture, understand the scripture? Yeah, how to explain that kind of uh, difficulty with texts about war or about views of women. Um, And there is a laundry list of other issues Mm -hmm. that we could go into. And, you know, it's an excellent question that we have to all address. I mean, it gets at the issue, how can you say love is at the core of the Bible when there are obvious texts where that's not the case? Well, first of all, the historical, the human dimension of the texts has to be given its due. What it was is what it was. The Bible itself sometimes quarrels with its own views and gives us, uh, I think, a model for thinking about how to deal with these texts. To take it, for instance, just within the Old Testament, you get a, a difficult text in Exodus that says that God loves those who love him to the thousandth generation, but will punish the children of those who sin for the third and fourth generation. Okay, that's tough. They found it tough in the 6th century BCE. Ezekiel heard people saying, you know, we're experiencing this invasion of the Babylonians destroying our city and the temple. That's because our fathers sinned. It's not us. Ezekiel heard a word from God that said, that's not the case. The soul that sins is the one who's punished. Okay, so there's a kind of revision. 
The other great example for Christians would be Jesus reading Exodus 21 that speaks about eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, from the perspective of the kingdom of God. So we're giving, we're getting a, what, you know, the highfalutin language would be the hermeneutical principle of how to interpret difficult texts from the standpoint of the kingdom and for Christians, the standpoint of Jesus. God commands war. God is love. Okay, how do these two texts sit within the same Bible? I think Jesus, and even uh, some examples in the Old Testament, will show us that these other texts need to be revisited according to these deeper principles. Paul can sound very anti-female, and at other times, he will say, in Jesus Christ, we have no male or female. So there are two principles even within the same person that are tussling with each other. So in many ways, the texts are still, I hesitate to say work in progress, but they, they do reflect the developments and trends that we are all subject to. And if Jesus says, on these two commandments hang the whole law and prophets, then we've got a hermeneutical key to be able to deal with these difficult things. You have, according to Jesus, you have to resolve the difficulty in terms of love that he revealed in the crucifixion. That love is the ultimate love, which is the ultimate meaning of all the texts. So that really affirms that uh, there's a need for an intelligent uh, understanding, study and, un uh, study and understanding of Scripture. Right. Yeah, and uh, that. And we need not fear all those difficult texts because there are ways. For 205. <laughs> yeah. I saw one uh, hand over here, and we'll, yes. we'll make that the last question for the evening. Right. Thank you. Yeah. I'm just curious if you have a, a preference uh, uh, for a particular edition of Scripture and or companion reference. So that's a bibliographical question uh, about a favorite version or a translation. Uh, I think it's useful to use several. Um, um, with, uh, with students, I use the New Revised Standard Version. It's an ecumenical version. The New American Bible, solid text that's at the base of our, our Christian, our Catholic readings at Mass. Um, I've always loved the New Jerusalem Bible for its kind of fluid uh, translations and great notes in the study edition, although the type is about four-point. About the old, old Jerusalem, too. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a, all I can say is there are, there are texts that I refer you to in the book. <laughs> um, one thing that I have loved uh, is a version done by Jews. The Jewish Study Bible is uh, a Jewish translation of the what we call Old Testament, for them the Bible, with magnificent notes and introductions that completely immerse you in the Jewish tradition. There is also, believe it or not, a Jewish-sponsored edition of the New Testament, the Jewish New Testament, very scholarly, 
not at all antagonistic or polemical. It's trying to bring up the Jewish dimensions of the text, which are everywhere, you know? And I've found it a, a, just a massive education to, to read this. Uh, it's in Oxford University Press, the Jewish uh, New Testament. Can we offer Dr. Cameron another round of applause? Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for coming out. Thank you for coming out. We thank the bookstore for their hospitality. We've got a table of the books available uh, not too far from the refreshments. Uh, I have students sign up for class credit uh, up here. And I think Dr. Kim is going to be signing for, for a small fee. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks again for coming out. We look forward to seeing you at future Tiramana Center events.